Welcome to What's in Critical Theory. On this episode, I'm talking to Charlotte Matheson about sea narratives, cultural responses to the sea, 1600s of the present, which is published by Palgrave Macmillan. Welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. On this episode, I'm talking to Charlotte Matheson, who is a lecturer in 19th century English at the University of Surrey, about a new collection of essays that she's edited called Sea Narratives, Cultural Responses to the Sea, 1600 to the Present. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me to speak about the book. So uh, one of the reasons I was really keen uh, to talk to you about this book is because it's a really fascinating subject that's approached from a whole variety of different, um, I guess, you know, broadly speaking, kind of literary or or, or cultural um, approaches. It's a sort of humanities um, text, but it coheres around this kind of core idea about sea narratives. And we're going to get into sort of defining that um, as the conversation goes. But I'm quite keen to hear a bit about the process of sort of developing the book, where the kind of the ideas for the book came from and, and maybe how it relates to some of the things you've been working on more generally. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, my work, broadly speaking, is on mobility in Victorian literature and culture. And I'm particularly interested in this sort of emerging crossover in mobility studies between cultures of mobility um, from sort of the arts and humanities during in and responding to social sciences debates about geographies from um, sort of cultural geography and mobility studies and how those two coalesce. So my my broader interest is really in movement um, across, across the uh, arts and social sciences and particularly materialities of movement um, and for me it's the embodiments of movement so the sea is not the focus of me my research but it's an aspect it's one of the sort of types of mobility that I'm interested in um, along with things like walking railway journeys and really where this collection came from was not out of my core research but actually from interdisciplinary collaborations at the University of Warwick where I was um, based for several years and where I worked on the Travel and Mobility Studies Network which brought together scholars from across the disciplines interested in these kind of conversations and one of those discussions led to a symposium on sea narratives where we brought together geographers and literary and cultural studies scholars um, to present on different aspects of the sea and its presence in culture and particularly thinking about its interactions with narrative and really in the course of the day and the reading I was doing thereafter what I realised was although there was a wealth of writing on the sea and culture and there's been a lot written about um, the sea and it's kind of how it percolates through different cultural forms specific literary genres relationships to the sea um, and there's a lot of use of cultural sources and a wide variety of cultural sources in that work and those histories of the sea that's being written at the moment. What I realised was that in in amongst this, the idea of the sea narrative and something that obviously really interests me as a literary scholar, um, the sea narrative is sort of at once quite central, but it's also been fundamentally overlooked. And no one had really thought about this term and isolated the context of the sea narrative and asked, well, what is it? Um, does it make sense to speak of a sea narrative? Is this a collection or a body of works? Um, can it be thought about as a distinct genre crossing multiple forms, multiple cultures, historical periods? And if we did that and we, if we isolated 
that um, idea of the sea narrative as a question, what else can we learn about the sea and the culture and about narrative from posing that as a concept? So that's really where this book started from. It started from this impulse to really foreground the sea narrative as the centre of inquiry rather than as this sort of implicit backdrop. Um, and look at how the sea narrative percolates across histories and cultures and what we would learn about in that process. So the starting point was this symposium. Um, five papers that made it into the collection came um, from the symposium itself. I think three were presented on the day and two, else, two others were from attendees that day. And then I solicited further contributions through a call for papers. Um, a call for papers which sort of overwhelmed me with the response because I had over 50 abstracts submitted. Wow. Um, yeah, and many of, about 20 of them, you know, really strong, really all could have been in there. So it was a job for me as editor to think about what this book was trying to say at that very early stage still and it you know and on the one hand that shows a really great you know surge of interest in the sea and scholarship at the moment and that throughout a number of disciplines the sea is coming to prominence um but what I wanted to do is to select the ones which I think have made it into this book, which all really pressed at the interrelationship between sea and narrative. And all of them either posed that as a question or had something very interesting to say about the relationship between the sea and narrative form, whether that's about new strategies of narration, rewriting the sea, intertextualities of narrative history, um, or using sea spaces, so ships and coasts, to rethink codes and conventions um, that might inform narrative. So that was the process behind this book. And it was really a process of, of narrowing down, but also keeping it very broad. And we've got this cultural um, kind of focus that spans um, from a number of different cultures. So we go from France to South Africa, Britain, Russia, um, America, the Levantine region, and also historical periods, so 1600 to the present. So we're looking at quite a broad scope, but that central thread that traces through of the sea narrative, I think, brings it all together and sort of keeps posing this question throughout. Yeah, it's worth sort of stressing the, the kind of eclectic nature of... Uh, of the sources as well. So, you know, as well as sort of um, reflections on more traditional um, literary forms, there's discussions of things like, um, I guess, kind of more, you know, kind of avant-garde filmmaking. Um, there are sort of historiographical um, chapters. Um, and then there are more, um, thinking of the, the final chapter in the book, you know, kind of more theoretical reflections on um, almost the kind of um, the social position uh, that, that we find ourselves uh, within um, at the moment. And as you say, it's kind of brought together around this one kind of core theme of the sea narrative. So it'd be really useful to know what is the sea narrative? What, what's the, uh, the kind of the, the object of study we're, we're thinking about and talking about here? Yeah, I mean, that's a really good question. And it's one that constantly evolved as I wrote the book. I don't know if I did get a definitive answer, but I did get a collection of answers that I think um, came to have a sort of distinct way of making sense of, yes, what you say is a, a broad corpus of narratives. Um, and in, in a way, that breadth is important. We go through letters, diaries, films, novels, plays, poems, newspapers, scientific documents, political documents, material artefacts. Um, and what one of the things that you know the book shows is that actually these forms can't be isolated from one another because they really interact and spur one another on when it comes to the sort of um, encounters at sea. But really, what I sort of ended up as understanding the sea narrative as being, I guess, if I had to bring it down to three key features, it would be that the sea narrative is a process 
that it's an innovation and it's a negotiation. Um, so in terms of innovation, most of the chapters work to an understanding of how the sea narrative inspires innovative techniques and that the sea is really a generator of narrative, um, that the sea doesn't necessarily fit into established forms, but demands new forms and techniques of writing, new words and languages of the sea. Our language is really enriched by sea metaphors and imagery um, and really prompting sort of adaptations and every sort of formal category that we start with ends up being sort of reshaped along the way by the sea. In turn, that sort of brings in the sea narrative as process. So something that comes out, I think, quite strongly here is that the sea narrative changes through being at sea. Um, it's a negotiation between the sea and the narrative as the writers sort of discover the ways in which the sea lends itself to narrative and as their texts unfold um, narrative is quite responsive to the conditions of the sea it's fluid and malleable so there's a sort of formation of process a way of re-understanding narrative by being at sea and then the, so the negotiation also takes shape here I think in terms of political social and cultural negotiations so sea narratives are a space where these codes are not necessarily contested or challenged um, or reshaped but certainly encountered in a heightened form and that poses an issue for narrative um, in terms of how how writers contend with these social codes so whether that's in the microcosm of the ship or the liminal space of the coast being at sea means bringing a new awareness of what it means to be human, to be social, um, to be national, to be global, all these different sorts of social interactions. So that negotiation of self is central. So really the key argument that I came down to here is that the sea stimulates these innovative interactive modes, it foregrounds the process of narrating the sea as central to its representation. So just as these, you know, the, the chapters that I selected for the book are sort of foregrounding that process in their scholarship, the narratives that they're studying also reveal that that is a process of their representation. Um, there's also here a question of the sort of trans and cross-national encounters that come about from this. And really the sea narrative, as I came to understand it, I felt that you couldn't really, it didn't make sense to understand sea narratives in isolated national contexts. Um, there are many, many good studies that have done that, uh, looked at the relationship between specific literary genres and nation building, so um, particularly in the context of Britain's um, imperial maritime um, history, there's some good studies about how sea narratives relate to nations, but the kind of networks and circulations and intercultural counters that came out of this book are really shown to be vital to these texts and that the sea narrative is really um, really engaged in and enriched by intercultural encounters and so even when the sea is quite resolutely national it's always spurring off the other national contexts that it comes to meet um, in the space of encountering the sea with national others and that's a really enriching process. So I really felt that, um, I mean, the, the transnational focus of the book is not comprehensive. We haven't got all the seas represented. Um, there's certainly omissions in this book. But I felt that the fluidities and the conversations that did take shape across these chapters really helped to understand um, the way in which the sea narrative works across national cultures. And many of the chapters do that within themselves. They'll take one or more national contexts throughout their studies. But there's also a lot of connections to be found across the chapters and the ways in which the sea narratives evolve across history as something that keeps sparing back and forth across these chapters. 
the, the other thing, and you sort of gestured to this, both in terms of the kind of um, the materiality of um, much of the, the focus of the chapters, but also the um, interconnections across nations, is a focus on kind of cultural production mm. and the relationship between the sea narrative and, and cultural production. And I wonder if you could sort of, you know, kind of come back to that and maybe give a bit more more detail on that, because it's interesting how this. Um, very much runs um, throughout the book and gives a sense of connecting up, you know, um, Russian propaganda about the Arctic with, you know, readings of Daphne du Maurier's work um, or the history of Ireland, you know, to give three examples from the chapters. Yeah, and so in chapter one, I really look to situate the sea narrative in this history of cultural production of the sea and think about how it's both rich and varied and quite diverse. But there's also a number of key tropes that draw these chapters together and that have formed quite a central um, understanding of the sea, certainly in the Western imagination. And there are, you know, if we were working from another national context, it would be um, important to understand sort of the limitations of of these visions, but certainly the sort of key tropes of culture, cultural presence that the sea has had, start to take shape through these chapters. And so, I mean, the first, the key one is really the starting point of the sea as this blank space or a void, an imaginary space beyond the land onto which ideas and imaginaries can be projected. Um, so it's sort of the blank space on the map waiting to be filled. It's the view that's persisted for a lot of Western history. It's one, as you say, that we see come into the Russian political propaganda. Um, we see it in coastal encounters as well. Um, the sea's liminal and provisional spaces, its border spaces, its shores and coasts um, are something that a lot of the chapters take up. And again, that's a key trope in writing about the sea is to think about the liminality of the sea, and particularly the point at where sea meets land and what happens from that encounter. Another really dominant image of the sea is its danger and its threat. Uh, so the fear of the natural world, the unknown beyond land. You know, for much of history, the sea wasn't well understood in terms of um, its capabilities, in terms of its damaging potential, causing shipwrecks, um, causing damage to human life as well as to often to sort of trading material goods. So it's a, a greater than human force. And that's something that really presses through, especially in the earlier chapters. And then we have this sort of more recent history of the sea as a space of leisure and pleasure. So the recent history of the seaside in Western culture as being one quite prominent mode that comes through here. And then the sea is a politicised space, and really a key space, both of geo politics on a global scale um, and also nation building and a sort of interiority of nations as being forged in relation to the sea. So these are key tropes, they're very familiar to scholars of the sea, they're tropes that run through a lot of scholarship and they weave through these chapters and I think what the chapters here show is partly that they generate different narrative strategies from those encounters so they're drawing out how those tropes might be formative as well as just there as sort of thematic ideas uh, running through sea writing. What I also hope um, has started to emerge here as well is that we've got new cultural tropes emerging today and the significance of the sea today is something that's coming to light in new ways and the sea is not just a historical force but I think now more than ever the cultural presence of the sea is starting to take new shape and some of those new tropes I think emerge particularly in the later chapters, but maybe also in the scholarship on earlier ones. So thinking, for example, about the transnationalism of the sea, its political import, which is arguably taking on new meanings in today's geopolitical climate. 
and also the environment and the ecology of the sea. The sea is becoming perceived now as a vulnerable space, um, threatened by human activity, and that's becoming quite prominent. And some of the later chapters pick up pick up on those ecological themes. So I think the chapters carve out places for these new cultural tropes of the sea through the ways in which they're thinking about and approaching that from their scholarship and showing that perhaps those you know those themes have always been there, but we're just looking for them in different ways now. So the next logical thing to do is kind of get into the chapters and see how these various themes play out. But obviously, as, a, as an editor, you know, it'd be sort of uh, a, bit, a bit cruel and unusual to kind of get you to talk through why authors have said what they've said and, and this kind of thing. But obviously, from the editorial perspective, you've got a sense of uh, the stories that are being told and, you know, the kind of importance of those stories in your selection. So we might kind of you know, go through them and, and, and get a flavour of, of what's going on in the book. And, and you know, the, the kind of um, the first um, chapter after the introduction deals with one of the most sort of easily understood and, and I guess, you know, iconic is an overused word, but, you know, the most kind of central sea crossings, which is the Atlantic crossing through the, uh, the kind of um, the route through early uh, early modern French accounts of of the Atlantic uh, crossing. So I wonder if you could say a bit about what's going on there, but also kind of how that opens the book. Mm, so in Michael Harrigan's chapter, as you say, early modern Atlantic basin, uh, rarely studied 17th century narratives in French to open the collection. And we do take a roughly chronological, not strictly chronological, but roughly uh, chronological move throughout the book. And really what Harrigan's account establishes for me, it really spoke to the signal themes of the collection, centering around ideas of narrative fluidities across genres and cultures. So I think the first thing that this chapter does is really centralise the mobility of sea narratives within quite dynamic networks of circulation and exchange across the Atlantic, both in terms of maritime networks and ships crossing and interacting with one another, and also print networks. So thinking about the contexts in which narratives are produced and read and received, and perhaps why why these narratives are being written and why they're important. And what's really interesting, I think, about Harrigan's account is how he reveals how this macro context of circulation feeds into the micro text. So he's reading for processes of transmission and exchange. And he comes to situate the sea narrative as this fluid repository for multiple other forms. So we immediately have a sense of these fluidities of the sea narrative um, and the ways in which it's drawing on but also creating new writings of, of other forms that are circulating at this time. We also have big questions of the self and the social negotiations that sea mobility entails. We've got local, national, global scales, cross-cultural relations that are forged, and opening up as well the relationship between those human and non or superhuman worlds, so the natural world and how the environment both shapes and is shaped by human actions at sea, as well as I think how humans have re attempted to understand their place in the world through the encounter with the natural force of the sea, and that's something that crops up again later. So we have these questions, key questions about the sea and what it does both to narrative and to the self and how those interweave. And I think that comes together in the sort of final thing that Harrigan's chapter really emphasised for me, which is the idea of narrative and what is narrative. And Harrigan starts with the most simple form of narrative, the etching of bark on a tree, um, and encourages really to look for 
hidden micro traces of narrative that may be in these less familiar um, but no less fascinating spaces and and the way in which those might interlink and connect up with other forms of narrative and again something that runs through most of the chapters here is the response um response to see as a generator of narrative and sort of finding narrative where it's made so what comes out of this chapter is the sea encounter precipitating new narrative forms new narrative modes as well as establishing some of these big questions and contexts about the self about mobility about circulation that then run on through the later chapters yeah there's a couple of really good examples that follow aren't there with um stories of kind of um, the imagination of the maritime in um, contexts of imprisonment and war and in captivity, but also, I guess, a more kind of formalised narrative um, in uh, Janet Remington's chapter about um, these newspaper articles written by um, Solomon Platchy about mm-hmm. his journey um, between South Africa and, and England, published, I, I, I love this, uh, in the uh, the Diamond Fields Advertiser, yeah. um, which, you know, I, I assume is no longer running, but you, ne- you never know. And, and I wonder, actually, yeah, if you could contrast um, those more sort of early modern accounts with, um, I guess, the more sort of formalised um, printed media accounts that, uh, that, that Janet Rimmington is, is attentive to. Yeah, so Remington takes us forward then to, so we've got 1914, the context of um, Solomon Plarch's sea narrative that's written en route to uh, the um, seat of the British Empire, London. He's part of the African National Congress deputation um, protesting against the Native Land Act in South Africa. So we've got a quite deeply politicised movement across the Atlantic and movement back to the seat of empire, but also a movement that brings in encounters with other aspects of history and racial history um, as well. And what we see here, and what I think was particularly interesting, I mean, the the pieces are important in themselves. Um, They're an important contribution to imperial history of South Africa and Britain from the perspective of a black South African. What really struck me was that the experience of being at sea becomes quite central and that there's a point here about the way in which these um, formalised accounts that are written for newspaper uh, documentation are they don't start as sea narratives but they end up being as sea narratives and the idea that the sea sort of seeps into um, into narrative where it's um, where it wasn't you know necessarily initially going to be found and so Janet Remington shows that the sea becomes there's a kind of modal shift in which the sea becomes part of the process of writing uh, Solomon Platt yeah, negotiates the physical conditions of the voyage so we have the seasickness the cramped conditions um and as well as the social encounters of the ship as coming to take quite important prominence and what she does is she shows the ways in which these physical experiences of mobilities interact with social and historical factors as well um so we've got the history of colonialism pressing in upon the space of the ship, but we've also got for Saul Plagia, uh, as a black African, the history of slavery and the Middle Passage, which comes to bear on his oceanic experience as well. And there's very rich readings of the way in which the cramped conditions of the ship and the, the physical sickness kind of evoke that history um, as being very real and very present for him. So the way in which being a black subject in transit becomes this quite uneasy encounter in which multiple scales and histories um, 
of empire are negotiated. And this encourages, I think, both to look for the complexities of sea voyage, the layers of social negotiation that are implicit in transit transnational encounters, and um, complicating, for example, the idea of the ship as being a Foucault it's a heterotopia, so a, a liminal space where um, social codes could be reforged or, or absent away from land, and shows that actually the layers of social negotiation are more complex than that. It's not an open space, a blank space away from land, but rather national histories uh, come into contact with one another and bring those histories into complex encounters in ways that are often quite challenging, quite provoking. So we've got this formal newspaper encounter that becomes a sea voyage when it wasn't meant to start, didn't start as a sea voyage, and in turn that sort of feeds back into the political context in which this is being written. Um, in a similar way, I mean, just to go back to Elodie Duchet's chapter, we have the idea of sea narratives as really seeping into the most unlikely of spaces. And she looks at Napoleonic prisoners of war and their narratives of captivity and reveals how they're sea-marked, so embedded in sea imagery and sea metaphors and forms, and really shows the persistence of maritime Im imaginary um, and imagery in the prisoners of war minds and how it's used to express themes of dislocation and displacement. What's interesting here, I think, from the particular point of view of narrative and what really drew me to thinking about how sea narratives forms is that Duchet's chapter reveals um, the sea narrative as crossing a multiplicity of forms. So she looks at the interaction of textual materials, so diaries, poems, but also melodic and oral histories, sea songs, visual histories, material artefacts, the ship models made by prisoners during captivity. And there's a couple of fascinating examples from the National uh, Maritime Museum in Greenwich, which are illustrated in the book, and shows how all of these artefacts come together to create um, a sea of stories, as she terms it, which interact off one another, but also show the persistence of um, maritime imaginary in that respect. I'm really making here a key argument of the book that the sea narrative is at its heart across genre mode and that we have to view it holistically. Um, so the phrase that Duchet uses, um, holistic perspective, to understand these fluidities across different types of text whether that written oral material. And I think she really draws out the rich resonances that come from, from bringing different materials together in that respect. This is also actually really well uh, illustrated by the discussion of the Russian Arctic um, in, in the fifth chapter, which I guess kind of takes us more to um, a, a sort of state-centric um, perspective, which is similar, uh, I guess, in the, uh, in, in the chapter that follows it, which... Um, engages with um, the questions of, of Ireland as a, as, as a maritime rather than as a sort of an insular nation. And I, I wonder if you could um, talk through uh, maybe those more sort of um, nation-based narratives, both in terms of Russia but also in terms of Ireland. What struck me about Stolberg's chapter, Eva Muriel Stolberg's chapter on uh, the Russian Arctic and its 
use as a site of propaganda in a new Soviet nation. What I thought was interesting here is how the sea narrative is not something that we're actually needing to look very hard for. It's quite consciously forged through Soviet propaganda as part of its strategic nation building. Um, and so she looks at how the sea plays this broader role in political imaginaries, which is something that's sort of running in the background of a lot of these chapters, but analyzes how the presence of the Arctic for Soviet Russia becomes quite a strategic site. Um, so we've got this idea of the sea narrative as almost being uh, quite consciously forged, quite strongly forged, and really, again, across diverse textual forms. So we've got political propaganda, but also novels, theatre, political speeches. And what this also brings in, it's not just the role of nation building, although that's important and central, um, and really shows how the sea has quite a prominent presence, and we sort of go back here to the idea of the sea as a blank space. And for uh, the Soviet nation, there's an idea that that blank space can be filled by a political imaginary. But what's really key to this as well is starting to bring in a technological narrative. And this idea that we have of the human negotiation with the sea is always being really mediated through maritime technologies. So ships obviously feature as quite central in most of the chapters. But with the 20th century, what we enter here is an era where the turn from sail and steam of previous decades sees the bringing in of much greater technological capabilities, so icebreakers and polar submarines, and those vessels can become a key site of encounter. Um, and for the Soviet imaginary, icebreakers tell the story of human progress over nature and of triumph, overcoming the barriers of the Arctic. So there's a real story of defeating the sea or conquering the sea, which comes through for political effect. So we've got a theme here of um, sort of human encounter with the ocean as being one of mastery and domination um, as running through narratives of progress. And, and that's a key strategy. And it's one we might look for elsewhere in more subtle ways in other national contexts. Um, so, for example, looking back at um, Britain's maritime encounters with the sea or other national imperial encounters, um, maybe less explicitly forged. So she, she provides this account, um, but also initiates themes which will come up again later. So human destruction, contamination. We begin to ask questions here about the environmental threats um, and the way in which the ecology of the sea is being put at risk, and that's something we'll come back to a bit later. So we've got a nation using the sea quite consciously for political ends. In the next chapter, in the discussion of Ireland by Roberta Gefter-Wonderick, we have, in a way, a different approach, because we have here the perspective um, that she approached it from, which is what about when a national literature doesn't have a strong history of sea literature? Despite its history being deeply embedded within and bound up with the sea, there's not a great case of um, a great corpus of sea literature in Irish writing. And this is the question that Gefter Wondrick takes up, firstly, in the, in the context of colonialism and history of British colonialism, which has complicated Ireland's relationship with the sea and literature. Um, and she argues that the predominance in Britain's imperial imaginary is one which um, has led to its relative absence in Irish literature. There's a few notable exceptions, obviously, uh, James Joyce, for example, which are drawn out. Um, but what Gefter Wondrick then shows is that in contemporary fiction, the sea has then become a really important space for rewriting the nation. 
And really what emerges here is the sort of the scene narrative as a rewriting of history and a space where history can come to new prominence. So looking at contemporary literary fiction sources, uh, novels by people like Bernard McLaverty, Neil Jordan, John Banville, she draws out the sea as emerging to prominence as a really powerful space for these writers to think about Ireland's history, its past, and how the sea becomes powerfully entwined. So what I think Gefta Wondrick's chapter uh, I think what it does for me is it is itself forging a kind of sea path. It's taking this corpus of contemporary fiction that's concerned with particular themes and it finds the fluidities and traces those paths through these works. And she particularly draws out resonant images of coasts and shorelines and really shows how we can use the sea narrative as a lens to draw together a body of works and in turn to offer new perspectives on their national engagements. Uh, I think it's also raising questions here as well about if we go back to the question of nation building, the question of tradition as well, and the weight of tradition in the sea narrative and how writers contend with that tradition. And that's something we go to again later in the chapter on A.S. Byatt. Um, and there's a sense here, I think, of writing the sea into national being and writing a tradition, which comes through in, uh, in this chapter on Ireland. The book, um, as you say, kind of roughly travels chronologically but also um it's interesting how it's essentially it's kind of its scope ends up uh, sort of expanding um as as we go through it and what one of the ways this can be illustrated is in um the chapter on the the anthropocene uh, which you know not only does it deal with kind of um cinematic um sources but also it's it's picking up on something that's that's pretty big, as, as it were, um, you know, way beyond kind of questions of individual um, novelists' work that might deal with regions. So um, the chapter on uh, Du Maurier and, and, and the coast, um, or uh, as we've discussed with kind of nation building in, in Russia and, and Ireland. So, yeah, I wonder if you could say a bit about Chowdhury's engagement with um, the, the globalisation of of Apocalypse, the cinema of mourning, um, and how we unveil the Anthropocene. Yeah, so with uh, with Chateau's chapter, we move to the context of Indian cinema and really, as you say, the macro context of globalisation, looking at this way in which the sea has really risen to prominence in recent years as a central site where the impacts of globalisation, of climate change are wrought uh, through ice cap melts, the fragility of the ocean ecology is really showing the first, you know, the most brutal signs of impact of human contamination. Uh, so the oil spills that we see in this film, we've also, as we've mentioned earlier in the book, um, nuclear contamination, waste dumping, and so on. So we've got the physical geography of the sea sort of emerging as a pressing concern. But then in this contemporary moment, um, the film is 20 years old now, so it's almost actually anticipating, I think, some of the discussions that we're having at the moment. But Aparnasen's work is showing uh, a reading of the sea, which makes these big interconnections between globalisation, the Anthropocene, the sea, ecology is vulnerable, also questions implicitly about um, empire and imperial encounters, as well as also thinking about the way in which these narratives are drawn together in the present moment. And I think in turning to film, and as you say, it's the only chapter in this book that um, that analyses film. But what it does, I think, it shows the way in which 
that film has the scope to really use this powerful visual imagery of the sea, both in its own terms um, to to show for this macro context and really hard hitting impact. And the final catastrophic image of the film is the sea catching fire as a result of um, oil spills, globalization um, as the sort of background context there. Um, but also able to craft, as Chad Hurry's reading shows, a really intricate form of sea narrative through the visual interweaving of narratives of macro scales of globalisation with the micro scales of human history and loss and separation that the film draws out. So I think it shows the sort of powerful movements the visual imagery can make and the ways in which we're encouraged to make those connections, as well as also showing the resonant visual imagery of the sea today. So there's discussion of the media, TV, news, newspapers and so on as well, and allowing us to think about where the sea's presence uh, has 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 a presence today um, in all sorts of media forms. So we move out to really think about the ways in which uh, human actions and activities are having quite a significant impact on the on the sea, um, but also to think about the way in which film is a different type of narrative that can really show you and bring these things to bear through its visual capabilities as well. The book closes with uh, a discussion around the concept of coastal exceptionalism, which which I think is, is a very interesting idea that uh, you might unpack. But I'm also interested from a sort of editorial perspective, uh, the choice of closing the book uh, around this uh, this idea of, of coastal exceptionalism. And then also, you know, uh, a, a chapter that is almost towards the end of the chapter, a kind of contemporary history of Silicon Valley um, as much as it is a, a reading of um, particular historical texts, both in um, things like um, magazines um, or, or anthologies. Um, so, yeah, I wonder if you could say a bit about uh, both the kind of the core idea of coastal exceptionalism, but also uh, the editorial process uh, behind choosing that to close the collection. Yeah, so the coast is a presence uh, throughout the book. There's references to the coast um, and coastal scenes, uh, most prominently probably in Gemma Goodman's chapter, which looks at Daphne du Maurier's use of the coast. And there's an idea that runs through Goodman's chapter, although she complicates it, about the way in which the coast has this idea of being liminal and spaced away, and a space where there's both a heightened encounter with social codes, but also the possibility for revisioning them. And it's that idea of the coast as a place of escape, as a place of freedom, as a place of tolerance, as a place on the edge of society, and as an almost outside space, but not quite. That's the idea that Land then takes up in his idea of coastal exceptionalism. Now, in Goodman's chapter, what's interesting is that we actually come to a complication of this, and we see that those freedoms and that space of liminality is quite provisional uh, and might be tempered by other factors. So she looks at it particularly in the context of gender and the way in which these sort of gender renegotiations that Daphne du Maurier's characters can make, female characters can make at the shore, um, is limited and it is provisional because of the histories and the, the maritime histories um, as well as social histories that intervene. So we have already complicated this idea of the coast as being a place of freedom and escape. And what Land's chapter does is to take a more theoretical look at this and to take a meta look at this concept and suggest that we isolate the notion of coastal exceptionalism as a concept 
in itself and that we ask questions of it. So is it exceptional? How, why and to what purpose? And Land goes on to further complicate this idea of the tolerant coast. He takes two very contrasting sites. Um, so we have readings of uh, Karnov's novels in the Levantine region, um, interweavings of autobiography and um, politics and cosmopolitanism that comes through there, and looking at these ideas of permissiveness and cultural interactions and then we move to the west or left coast of the United States and look at how again ideas of counterculture and permissiveness have to be read for carefully and that actually the tolerant coast might be quite fragile and quite precarious in its permissiveness and how that freedom of the coast might be curtailed. So we reach a more theoretical standpoint and I felt from an editorial point of view, what Land's chapter does, it firstly encourages us to think about the terminologies that we use, the concepts that we use, to consider the ways in which these histories have evolved, but might also feed into our scholarship in quite implicit ways. And that one thing we need to do is to take a, a broader look and uh, take a more critical look at the ways in which we use these concepts. I also felt that coasts were a really fitting point to end, uh, just about back on shore at the end of the book, um, but had, had a very contemporary rele relevance and resonance. And particularly as I was writing this book, uh, writing the instructions to this book in the summer of 2015, as coasts came to prominence in really, I think, unprecedented ways in, in recent years. So we had the refugee and migrant crisis last year um, and on this year playing out in the seas and on the coasts of Europe. And that's something that's really brought the idea of coastal borders, coastal boundaries, um, their role in, in defining the nation space quite fully into view. And particularly this year, we've seen a renewed political discourse that's turning against free mobility. And the idea of the tolerant coast has turned quite strongly, I feel, to the idea of coasts as a threat um, and being recrafted to spaces of intolerance, um, where the permeability of the coast as a tolerant space is now something to be prohibited and curtailed, um, no more, nowhere more literally than the building of the Calais Wall, which is, you know, a literal, um, literal act of refuting the liminality of borders and border spaces. So I feel that ending with coasts is is asking quite important questions about the sea and its space and also about the ways in which the sea is being um, being rethought and its, its boundaries and its connections. Um, I think many of the chapters speak to this and speak to the ways in which the sea is politically, socially and culturally significant. And I think Land's chapter actually offers us an opportunity to go back to those chapters and rethink about how those histories of the sea and its narratives of migration, its narratives of mobility, its intercultural contacts and connections, how these resonate throughout those histories and how these present opportunities, um, how we can learn from both the difficulties of those histories, but also the possibilities. And so I think there's one thing this chapter shows that the sea and its possibilities of intercultural contact, intercultural connection, its narratives of mobility, they're all opportunities and they're all generating this sea narrative. And that's something that I hope this book really contributes to, um, is thinking about the way in which the sea has this strong presence as an opportunity um, and as a as a vital force, really. And so while there's 
a big cultural presence of the sea today, looking at the way in which it's narrated is a useful way in which to better understand how the sea is being used and how its spaces are being used um, in those kind of messages. So that was the that was the way in which I think Land's chapter offers us the opportunity to open up these questions and to think both about the histories of the sea and the ways in which they're useful to us today. As you say, actually, it's you know um, a really vital contemporary discussion, uh, and, and hopefully the book um, can can be read as much in that way um, as it will be by um, you know more sort of. Uh, specialised uh, disciplinary or, or field-related scholars. Um, I mean, there, there's there's so much more we could have talked about uh, in the book. Actually, and, you know, hopefully we've done sort of some justice to uh, the richness of of the chapters. And I wonder if we if we might close the discussion with kind of where you go next, um, both you know intellectually, but also as as an editor in terms of um, are you kind of you know working more on themes around sea narratives um you know have, have you been kind of like working on promoting the book in in various ways or are you sort of trying to found a, a new set of of intellectual themes on on, on a different topic yeah, I mean, in terms of the book, I think it's really been interesting actually to see who's been interested in this book. And it was one of the questions, you know, obviously when you're writing a book and you're putting it together, you have the question of the audience is there quite strongly in mind. But it's been really encouraging to see actually just how uh, far its interest has spread and how many disciplines it's it seems to touch upon. And I'm, you know, it's something that you can't really anticipate until it's out is just how much that's going to happen. But there's obviously a big field of maritime studies and maritime time history that is has taken strong shape um but it's also got a lot of relevance and associations with other disciplines so i think as people start to read and respond to the book it'll be really interesting to see how those discussions and what what other discussions people draw out of this as well um for me as a scholar the next bit of or the next stage of my work is sort of taking a maritime theme in there um it's taking my idea of the mobility of the body in a new direction and that's by looking at the suntanned body so my next project is going to be suntanning in victorian medicine and culture and this does have a sea theme running through it because obviously maritime medicine and sailors bodies and the mobilities of the sea have all been quite important in shaping suntanning history um but i'm also broadening this out to uh, to a broader context and it's really about what the Victorians thought about sun tanning and how they began to understand it from a medical perspective, how it began to have a cultural presence um, and what ideas of race, class, gender and health all come through the suntan body and are rethought by it. Um, so I'm looking both at a lot of maritime documents and the maritime element is going to be my starting point because it's so fresh in my mind from having just worked on this book, um, but also looking across novels, poetry, other cultural documents, medical records medical products and so on as well so that the maritime is definitely still pressing in strongly um but but taking a slightly broader scope for me now thanks for listening to numerous political theory on this episode i was talking to charlotte matheson about sea narratives cultural responses to the sea 1600s to the present published by palgrave Macmillan in 2016